You're listening to Transplaner RPG, an all-transgender, people-of-color-led, dark-fantasy actual play channel set in an original non-colonial, anti-orientalist multiverse. The Chaos Protocol is our second main campaign and stars Valiant Dorian, Kai Kay, and Sam Starr as players, with C. Thomas as the producer and Connie Chong as the game master. Transplaner RPG is sponsored by Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy whose director, Dimitri Opines, has asked us to say, and I quote, Please sign up for Transplaner's Patreon, because at some point people will figure out he's a cisgender white guy failing upward, and then he'll be too broke to sponsor us. We love you, Dimitri, and thank you so much for supporting our work. Arc 2 is proudly sponsored by HeroForge, a free online character design application that lets you make and order your very own custom TTRPG minis. Their character creation tools are rich and deep, with facial customization, animal companions, action poses, spell effects, hundreds of clothing options, and nigh-infinite color choices. Get a color-printed mini, unpainted premium plastic, bronze minis, color standees, or even your very own digital STL files for printing at home or use in virtual tabletops. To see their tools in action, go to HeroForge Minis on Twitter and search Artemis. They made a mini of Nova's very own Hand of Fate, and she looks good. Check out HeroForge today at HeroForge.com. Content warnings for this episode may include death of loved ones, grief, mourning, descriptions of food, guns, blood, deep bodies of water, swimming, fantasy violence, complex and complicated relationships, heights, falling, and references to alcohol use, child death, and suffocation. Arc 2, Episode 2, Forgotten Daughter, from Carved Inside an Empty Urn by Connie Chong. A single path leads from River Run to Lodestar Steading. It's made of dirt, unpaved, Way too narrow in some places and way too broad in others. But the potholes never stay long, and it's always clear of stones. Sorna taught you to take care of it. River Run isn't the only strip of land that matters on the outskirts of Haruna City. Nurture the arteries that spill from the lake, and the lake will nurture you in turn. Of course, lake isn't what it used to be. But Sorna's lessons still stand. For some of you more than others, but the road stays cared for. At the end of this narrow, broad, winding, well-loved path, we find Lodestarred setting. The farmhouse looks gray and red in the sunset. The screen doors shut to keep out the hoppers, but the front doors wide open, and you and Artemis can smell Dom's cooking. Fragrant, simmering mushrooms, shrimp and chicken meatballs, cabbage, carrots, bean sprouts that have been marinating for a half day, handmade drakeberry mochi for dessert. Piera and Azalise are on the porch. Piera is in the rocking chair. Her short hair is red today, glowing freckles dancing across light pink skin, her white eyes fixed on the activity of polishing the gun across her legs. It's unloaded, the ammo upstairs in a lockbox, because right now, Azalise is playing with Doxa. Azal's purple skin is darker than the sunset. 
the twin braids of their cosmic hair frame a hard jaw, soft cheeks. Zynan, you play a part in this memory. You are bringing the raptor with the broken claw up the path. You're tying it at the hitching post just beside the porch. Loose feathers and dust stir around your well-loved boots. What do you see of the man you used to be as this memory plays out? There were these brown, simple gloves. He doesn't even remember where he got them anymore, but they're the ones that he very often would wear when he was specifically tending to a raptor with a claw issue, something about wanting to keep all of his fingers. They hold the lead rope gently. The raptor's just following easy, and that freckle on his hand now inside the glove, he can feel the gloves, but they're also his gloves from being a trans agent. He's somewhere between feeling the memory and feeling who he was is and the ground feels so familiar that slightly soft well cared for road that he's walked up and down his entire life Sorna's well traveled road you are watching yourself with your strong shoulders and your thick gloves and the lead in your hand as you're tying it around the hitching post. You are listening to yourself listen to Azulis and Doxa. Doxa tottering around, bright, a little wet around the face as usual, as four-year-olds are wont to be. And as soon as you pull up with the raptor, you see yourself look at Doxa as she totters forward, eyes bright, hands going up toward the shining beak of the raptor. Raptor! Raptor! And she's heading toward the stairs, enthusiastically. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Zainan doesn't stop her. But what he does do is stand up straight. Doxa, you know how to approach a raptor. Mmm. Doxa stops just short of the step. Ozel leans back onto their hip and watches with a amused, cocked smile. Piera chokes back a snort, and Dom's humming from the kitchen through the screen door can be heard as a low undertone through all of this. Daxa thinks really hard, the fists curved by her side. She nods intensely at the raptor, like she's encountering her first ever test. Mmm. Quiet. Mm-hmm. Mmm. Slow? Very good, Sprout. Mmm. Come. Uh. Uh. Com. Ca. Co- confident. There it is. And what does confident mean? Mmm. Uh. And Doxa looks over her shoulder at Azalees. Azalees leans back on one hand and just laughs. <laughs> You're not gonna find any answers from me, little one. Mmm. Kind of annoyed, Doxa turns back to look at you. Mmm. Uh, not scared. Close. And Zainan stands up straight, and the dust, the salt, all falls off of him, and he's standing there in his soft, green, well-loved farmhand clothes. The scars on his face vanish, and standing there in his trusty boots that he has worn for way too long, He stands up straight and smiles down at Doxa. Look at me. 
and Zainan puffs out his chest, holds his hands in front of himself, open but firm. If you are confident, you look at the world and you're not worried about who you are. You're wondering what the world has for you. <laughs> uh, has Raptor? I I want I want to ride. Uh, oh. <laughs> I want to ride the Raptor. <laughs> and Zynan caves. He's trying so hard to be wise, but he just quickly bends down, scoops her up, puts his arm under her rear, and very easily hoist this four-year-old. <laughs> yeah, the raptor obligingly lets you put Daxa onto his back, and at that, Piera kind of kicks her feet up onto the stool in front of the rocking chair, lets out a snort, addresses Azalise, but definitely loud enough for you to hear as well, as she continues polishing the gun. <laughs> what I tell you, Azul, weakest link. Hey, hmm? some of us have desirable vulnerabilities, he says, smiling from ear to ear at Doxa. Excuse you, Zai. My vulnerabilities are plenty desirable. Just ask Dom. Or Ozzel. Or yourself. (laughs) What do you think, Ozzel? Well, I think that Piera's vulnerabilities come in the shape of pretty girls and booze. And so do yours. But if we're talking more about the matters of the heart, then our shared vulnerability is on the back of a raptor with a broken claw. Not as broken anymore. And Zainan rubs the chest of this raptor, feeling the feathers in his hand, never taking his other hand off of Doxa. Doxa is very happily making finger guns and going, pow, 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 pow. You show him. Beside you, Artemis laughs. And the scene splits again. Are you and her standing on the path watching you laugh, watching Doxa laugh? The sound is bizarre out of Artemis's mouth. You don't think you've ever heard her laugh before. You have a lot of memories, Zainanesh. She's beautiful. You live long enough, you end up with maybe more than you thought you would. <laughs> You're really telling that to me? I don't know. You're the one that's always a mystery. Hmm. Artemis considers this for a moment and I think in the memory like maybe Doxa comes tottering down the path a little bit now as you're starting to take the raptor back to the barn and Artemis just kind of watches her go almost like they would reach out but they don't Hmm. she is beautiful all of them are so are they she gestures at something beyond this vision turns to show you. So are they. He can't look away. The beautiful sunset holding his eyes on first Doxa, feeling the soft dirt as he's walking but not walking. And he can just hear her little four-year-old footsteps next to a raptor and the sound of home. They'll still be there. They'll always be there. It's the problem with memory. They'll always be there. Something else I want you to see, too. As Artemis turns and you follow their gaze, the landscape changes. A different memory. 
surfaces to take its place. Storm Chaser. The Wild Sea. Squall, a raptor by another name, fluttering over ironwood slats, his beak full of Sing's lunch. Sing, upset but laughing, chasing the Triforodon with her longsword brandished, a bossy up on the helm laughing her ass off, you intervening. A quiet moment, perched atop the mantic rose nest, the wind ruffling your hair, Sing by your side, holding her hard-won lunch. She turns to look at you. Her pink eyes are aglow. She asks you a question. She wants to know how you caught him. How you're so attuned to animals. What did you tell her, Zainan? Just an old trick. Been doing this for a long time. The memory softens. It fades. Artemis's voice rolls in like a gentle storm on the horizon, bringing rain that crops desperately need. You were right. She's beautiful too. And we both do have a lot of memories. I keep collecting them. Sometimes I think I'll get old enough to stop caring. Too full of memory to hold on to another. But I don't. You won't. Either. You can lie to yourself, Sinanesh, for as long as you'd like. But do not dare think that you can lie to me. Uh, and the farm boy becomes the agent, becomes the ash, no, the dust. And he looks at you, Artemis and the tears that he hasn't even been able to shed begin to fall onto lavender skin. A ghost flickering in and out of who he was, who he is, who he isn't. As you begin to cry, Artemis takes a hand stained with blood and raises it to that mask on her face. She takes the chipped silver all covered in laurel leaves takes it off whatever you see of the top of your face you forget instantly like it doesn't exist like it's not there but it is and you know it is because you know she's crying too that much you can hold on and you can remember you know that she's crying too with you the mask clatters onto the floor the ground the deck of storm chaser the road leading to the lodestar setting her office i could ask you to come back to the syndicate now. I know you'd come back the second that I did, as I know you. I will not ask, I will not ask you to do that. But I need you to know one thing before I go. I need you to know that I want to ask you to come back. Not because I think it would be good for you, and not because I think you're ready, but because you are mortal, and I am selfish. A glint of the sunset on Lodestar studying in Zynan's green eyes. The green of the wild sea, pink in her eyes, flash among the tears. She won't be there. Is that really what you think? Because I can see her right now. She's looking at you. She's not looking at the memory, she's looking at you. And Zynan looks to sing 
studies her face, studies this memory, this moment. All of them are gone, Artemis. And what, what a Nova. I wasn't there. I didn't stop it. I didn't stop it. There was nothing to stop, Zion and Ash. They are. I told you not to lie to me. You know where they are. And Artemis reaches up and touches that torn robe. Not even at her heart, but in the place that one of the arrows in her back would come through. They're here. In our blood. In our bones. You know this. I know you know this. He looks at Sing, but he also looks past them. He looks to every conversation that they ever had where he was trying so hard and fumbling at being her mentor. And all he sees is the shape of who he wanted to be. Who he wanted to be at Lodestar. He just wanted to be his Ema. His Ema who was right there with him the whole time. You, uh, you really think I'm still mortal? The head tips. It smiles. I would know your heart from light years away. Then I guess I'd do what mortals do. Work. Make more memories. Find them. Find her again. They need you. He studies the curve of Sing's cheeks. The cherry blossoms on her antlers. I am selfish. And I need you too. You know where to find me when you're ready. He stands up. He could sit in this moment forever. He could have stayed at Lodestar forever. He kind of never leaves. But at the same time, he knows when Artemis needs him too. And to be needed is what he actually wants. And Zynanesh stands up to follow. Zynan, you aren't ready. You've never been ready. Maybe you never will be. But right now, being ready doesn't matter. All that matters is that you follow Artemis's blood trail through the memories, through the dust, through the cherry blossoms, the wild sea, the empty realm of ghosts, Kesaki, all the way back to the syndicate back to your body. Lumira, you follow Artemis through the Ionian Grove, the Weeping Falls, the Forest of Memories, the Delian Woods, whatever you want to call it, whatever names whisper in your ear as you tread through darkened brush. Rocky, pliant earth bends beneath your feet. Flowering shrubs rustle past your knees. The trees here are short, thick, full of bright green leaves. The mist clings to your skin like a ghost's kiss. You hear your own footsteps, the snapping of twigs, the springing of earth. And then, slowly, surely, you begin to hear something else. A dull, distant roar growing louder and louder and louder. Artemis leads you through a break in the trees, and then you see it. 
a small, bubbling waterfall that pours into a pool of crystal clear spring water. The banks are thick with ferns, peonies, crocus blooms, anemone. This grove smells ancient, hidden, holy. As you step into the grove, something about Artemis relaxes all the way. Something about that tense line of their shoulders drops slightly, flexes. You can almost hear them breathing from in front of you. Here we are. Thank you for indulging me on my walk. What do you think? What? What is this place? This is my home. My grove. This is my, uh, secret. Not really so much a secret, but it is mine. This place is sacred. It's beautiful. I'm glad you think so. It has been my solitude and my security for many years now. Now it will be yours. Excuse me. I... I think I misunderstood. What? You did not misunderstand. You heard me. Come here whenever you like. Study. Train. Nobody will disturb you here. Not even me. Not even fate. And I think Lumira looked a bit skeptical, but the more you started to explain... She softens, and her eyes look back up at you with that same wondrous gaze, just as she did when she was eight, nine, ten years old. No one, no one? No one. Fate gives each of us, patron saints, a small gift when she ascends us. One thing of our choosing. And you chose a grove? I did. Do you think me foolish? Not at all. It seems so familiar. And Artemis nods. She looks at you the same way she did when you were eight, nine, ten. The secret smile, the small affections. Come to the water's edge, and Artemis walks over, soft. You can hardly hear her feet against the forest floor. It's quiet. It's just the water. She points down into it, looking gently, soft. What do you see? The ocean floor, and stops mid-sentence. And she leans in closer. At this point, she's not even realizing it, but stepping further into the water. The waves are now lapping at her feet, ankles, until she's about calf deep in the shoreline. Look deeper. And she wades out a bit further, not even caring about the fact that she's still in most of her trans uniform and is now waist deep in water but something keeps pulling her forward before she completely submerges underneath into the waves there's a glimmer in the corner of her eye that she can't shake and it's 
like a weird northern star, like a, a, a beacon that draws her further and further to it. Lumira, the water, as soon as you step inside, is cold. It shocks you. Every single hair on your body stands on end, and then it smooths as you wade deeper and deeper into the pool. And the sound of the waterfall around you is a dull, constant, soothing roar. Your bare feet are pressing against the smooth, wet silt at the bottom of this pond. You walk and you walk and you walk until the water rises to your neck, to your mouth, to your nose, and you plunge into the sacred pool. And in the water around you, all you see is black. The blackness of the night sky. The blackness of the void between planes. The blackness of a darkened mirror. A mirror, yes, you see yourself in the water, Lumira, as bright as a ghost, your silhouette limbed in starlight from a place whose name you will soon remember. Yes, starlight. There are stars in this watery darkness twinkling like diamonds. You don't recognize this night sky, these constellations, and yet something feels so familiar, like a circle in a spiral a dream within a dream. And then you hear the patron saint of mortals voice by your ear, though you were underwater, it comes as clear as though she breathed it in the light of day. Yes. What do you see? And as Artemis speaks, you realize that on the shore, in the water next to you, they're not looking at you anymore with that borrowed gaze. They, too, are gazing into the water underneath them, around them, above them, and you know they're not seeing what you're seeing. And then, in this darkened mirror all around you, you open your eyes and you see her. A half-step behind you, refracted in the darkness, smiling. Her eyes obscured by that unmistakable white mane flowing around her in the waves. Through the water you smell her. The cherry blossoms. The incense. She leans over, floating behind you, a half-step behind you, above you, her antlers dipping down like a white heart about to graze. And she kisses you on the cheek. You don't feel it. The echo of that kiss lingers against your skin like mist, like smoke, like a ghost, and the strangely familiar starlight halos both of your faces. And in the water, Sing smiles. She giggles, her eyes still hidden by her hair, cups your waist in a touch you don't feel, tries to draw your attention to something else in the water beside you. It's Artemis. She's swimming too. And you realize that time must have passed because the patron saint has removed some of her armor and is all the way in the water beside you. Without it, she looks even stronger than usual. The, the leather and the brass and the shawl are all these darkened mirrors to obscure a radiance that would cut you otherwise. The gesture is intimate, familial. 
their bodies like an oak. Curved branches of fat over well-layered, trained muscle. Bark and sap. One side of her chest is thick with tissue. The other is flat with a hempen rope of scar tissue that forms a branch of laurel underneath one of her pectoral muscles. The scar is gilded in silver, bronze, and gold. There are more scars, three heavy puncture wounds in their back, distracted by the intricate tattoo that sits on her skull. You recognize the infinite networks of realities, layers of reality and magic, much like the maps that you can find in the observatory. But whatever world this depicts is not one you recognize. She sees you through the water, both of you completely submerged, but when she speaks, it's like you're still on land. You see her, don't you, in the water? I see her everywhere, not just here. And Artemis smiles so sadly at you, and you know that she sees something in the water just like you do. It's not saying that I mourn for you twice. It is no easy thing to lose a soulmate. And she dives deeper into the water, and the edges of her begin to disappear. Lumira shakes her vision clear. She probably should sleep longer than 20 minutes tonight. Not that much longer, but this can affect her work. And she just swims deeper behind you. Lumira, your breath now begins to burn in your lungs, but it doesn't hurt. It feels holy, weightless. How do you spend these precious few moments plunging into the depths of the sacred pool before you surface for air? I think Lumira sits in the water and She's treading it, almost, sitting and using her arms and legs to keep her afloat. Something about this is not scary like you would think. It almost, if she wasn't so preoccupied with what was going on in Artemis and seeing, saying not, seeing, saying, she'd probably be a bit more concerned about how familiar this feels. How it doesn't feel like a strange sensation. Like it's a sensation that she's experienced before, but is just now being able to recall in bits and pieces. And she attempts to make her way to break the surface. The familiarity rises around you like soap bubbles, and you ascend shallower, shallower, shallower through the starry water. And when you surface, you do not breathe in the misty air of Artemis's grove. You do not hear the waterfall. You do not see the trees and the dark, silky grass. You are somewhere else somewhere new, somewhere ancient, somewhere strange and familiar all at once. 
You're in a shaded thicket with huge palm fronds, thick green vines and dense foliage in rich, vibrant hues. Green leaves, brown coconuts, orange blossoms, red fruits. In the middle of this thicket, there's a pond. A vast, deep, natural limestone pool with rocky, porous walls and thick shrubbery lining the edges. A break in the foliage above your head reveals a bright, full moon. She's pale, cold, shining with mechanical veins. Countless stars glimmer beside her a half-step behind. A pillar of moonlight pours down onto your head. Yes, your head. You're floating in the middle of this pond, treading water with effortless ease. And standing around this pool, surrounding you, is your community. Your family. Mingling together on the banks of this starry pool, garbed in their Adolin best. Lush greens, bright silvers, dark woody browns. Their faces are blurred. You can't make them out. Your mother? Your mom? Both of them. They're wading into the water and they're speaking to you. Their words are not blurred, but you can't understand the language. Not entirely. Parts of what they're saying are lucid a, a little bit, but the details of the consonants, the syllables, the, the tones, the meanings, they escape you. You can figure out the gist of it, though. It comes to you, half-remembered in this dream, this memory. You understand two words. Daughter. Proud. And you feel something in your palm. What emotion rises? And what action accompanies it? Daughter and proud ring in her head like a bell. It's a consistent wave of hearing it on repeat. She can't articulate the pride that puffs in her chest at hearing that. Typically the same feeling that when Artemis pats her on the back, she feels, but a million times greater. And even though she can't make out the faces and the dialect is not clicking completely for her. She wants to continue to do right. It fuels her. And weirdly, everything kind of seems like it's towards the back. Everything is tunnel visioned on this exact moment right here and she ducks back under the water briefly before swimming back up to the surface with all of her might it almost launches her out of the water a little bit with the force that she comes out before she kind of plops back in like a buoy brushing her massive curls over her head and out of her face. And she turns around, looking for 
Artemis. They were there with her. As your eyes scan this pool, as you surface once more looking for Artemis, you feel that heavy object in the pit of your hands. It hasn't left your palm even as you dove back underneath the waves. As you breathe in crisp thicket air again, you look down and you see that you're holding a star, a fallen star, a scooped up star from the bottom of the world. You're holding a pocket watch, your pocket watch, golden brass ticking along on a chain. You're holding a small black seed. You're holding a red flickering X. You're holding a key. You're holding a key. And then you hear a ripple, you sense movement. Artemis. Artemis is swimming, is walking now halfway up the bank. Her torso is cooling in the dense forest air, water running in thin rivulets past well-muscled shoulders and her neck. When you look back at this hand of fate, the thick ferns and coconuts and limestone pools fade into peonies, crocus blooms, and you are in Artemis's sacred grove once more, the echo of where you just were lingering on your skin like beads of spring water. Sometimes the water takes me somewhere else. Where did you go? Home. Tonga. When Artemis called the wild hunt for training this morning, Long was not expecting circuits. Ta was expecting a mission briefing, a mayday, another dying world. They expected Artemis's soft but firm smile, strained since the death of the Chosen One. They expected jokes from Diego, a chilling but comforting anecdote from Muse, she expected Kamar to trail after Artemis's every word. They'd get over the crush eventually, they all did. The patron saints were untouchable, Artemis was unflappable, but hey, an agent could dream. What Ta did not expect was a fifth person, a stranger, walking into the Wild Hunt's private training quarters. Sayer. As you enter, four shapes appear from the hazy, rain-dazzled mist. The first person you see is carved from cracked marble. Old, mossy growth blooms in the fractures between their limbs. Their deteriorating body levitates in midair, an arm here like there, held together by pure incandescent magic. You know their name. Muse. Oh, Diego, Artemis has brought someone. Come see. And from behind Muse, comes a broad-chested man with warm brown skin and long, thick, curly dark hair that reaches his mid-back. Scars crisscross her body. She carries no weapons, just a smile. A wickedly sharp smile that warms the cold rain on your skin. Diego del Sol. I see them, Muse. I see him. Be nice, Diego. You'll scare the poor kid before we're even introduced. 
another voice cuts from the mist sharply to your left, and you see a slender person with dark brown skin and curly, thick white hair peeking out from a loosely wrapped gold and red headscarf. Long white robes flow to the tips of their toes, but float just a few inches above the stone beneath their feet as though suspended in water. Magic vibrates from every pore of their body. Kamar Abad. Finally, your eyes fall upon the largest shadow coming out from the mist. You see a tall, muscular woman with light brown skin and long black hair shaved on the sides and tied in a loose braid down her back. One of their eyes is made entirely of jade stone. The other is black, incisive, calculating. He wields a pair of bronze double-ended spears with leather handles in the middle. Ta looks you up and down with a cold, ascertaining expression. And then a warm smile cracks Tata face. <laughs> so, you're the Sayer we've heard so much about. And Sayer's entire chest is lost of air. He, of course, has memorized each individual's name of the Wild Hunt, each of their features. He knew who was approaching just from the shadows. Their poster hangs in their bedroom. This is all he has dreamed of, all he has longed for. To stand amidst true greatness, not heroism, not power and victory, consistency and efficiency made incarnate right before his eyes. And as his eyes brighten, they darken for a moment. He stares at all of them, notices their greeting, and his eyes pan over to the patron saint of mortals for a moment, and a darkness covers his eyes. This isn't the me they want to see. And he puts on a unsettling, a unused to expression on his face, a smile, bright and radiant like the sun, familiar yet not his own. He says, Sirs, Wild Hunt, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's a pleasure to meet all of you. An honor. It's a pleasure to meet you as well, Sayer. And everyone knows who the Wild Hunt is, obviously, uh, unlike Wuyin's Twilight, Twilight Guard or Lucy's Revelry, Artemis's top-ranked team, which is exactly why you like them and idolize them so much, doesn't bask in the spotlight, nor do they crave it. They are the most elusive of the top three-ranked strike teams, glimpsed from a distance, at most frequently on mission, and busy training when they're not. This is the most you've seen any of them up close. And they certainly don't disappoint. And Diego steps forward in front of Muse, that huge wolfish grin stretching across her face. Artemis's little hunter. You know, she spends so much time fussing over Nova, I was beginning to think you were going to steal her away from us. Diego, mind your manners, please. Manners? What manners? You know I was raised by wolves. Muse cuts in. I thought you were raised by feral dragons. Ah, wolves, feral dragons, coyotes made of fire. <laughs> the story is what I want the story to be. That it is. Thank you very much. 
Sayer, our resident bullshitter. And this is Kamar, but a slight smile cocks the side of their neutral mouth. It's, it's all right. It's all right. No worries at all. And he shakes his hands in front of his body again in an expression strangely alien upon his palms as he shies away from the chaos that's unfurling in front of him. It's wonderful to just be in all of your presence. And Artemis watches you. And as you address her, you notice that they have actually been looking at you this whole time watching your expressions shift, watching the mask go on. And there's a kind of place halfway between a question and an answer that Artemis doesn't even want to get to. As they see what you're doing, register it, frown. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I brought you all here for a reason. And Artemis begins to walk further into this valley, the stone and the rain running slick against their skin. I know you all prefer to work with proper motivation, a proper quarry. So I've added some stakes to our training for tonight. And Artemis holds up her hand, dangling from her fingers, appearing out of basically nowhere, is a simple hempen tie and a pendant, a crescent moon made of simple silver turned on its side so that the edges point toward the ground. Agent Sayer, if you can retrieve this, and they raise their fist, pendant, from the bird's nest on top of this, and they lean back and gesture upward to the massive alpine tree that they're standing beside, a pine hundreds of feet tall, the top of which spirals up and away into the curling nest. Then the pendant is yours, and... You can consider your past disciplinary indiscretions forgotten. At disciplinary indiscretions, Diego's wolfish grin gets even wider and he hawks up a thick eyebrow, and Kamar's placid, undisturbed smile widens. Ah, troublemaker. Wild Hunt, your objective is to keep the pendant in the nest, or... Can we keep the pendant when, I mean, if we win. Artemis only smiles, uh, knowing a secretive expression coming over her strong brow. Take a few moments to prepare yourselves. Wild Hunt, you know what to do. She leads against the tree. Sayer, three members of the Wild Hunt, all of them except Diego, give you a final ascertaining but warm look and then disappear into the mist in the direction of the tree. Diego is the last to leave. She's walking backward in her huge boots and is continuing to shoot you that big, charming, sharp-toothed grin. See you up there, champ. If you make it. And then she vanishes into the mist. Thayer takes a moment to exhale. The vision, the golden eyes of mystery yet unsettling acerbicness from Artemis before. What was that look? Was I not good enough? Then I must commit. No half-assing this. I need to become the person Trans needs me to be, that Nova needs me to be, that Artemis needs me to be. Is there a weapons rack nearby? The only weapons in your vicinity are the ones either strapped to your hip or found in nature in these alpine woods. But upon seeing you looking for something, Artemis raises an eyebrow. Do you need something? 
Uh, I was just taking a look around to see if there was a weapons rack nearby. Hmm. Artemis taps a side of a huge jagged boulder. And I think just kind of forming out of it are like the stone almost comes alive to form any manner of weapon that you could possibly want. Sayer approaches. And there's a moment where his hand goes towards his waist, instinctively, fingers grazing on the hilt of his crescent blade, then shudder away. And he approaches this boulder in front of him, those bright blue eyes, a strange, strange, strange look over it. And he pushes his black shaggy hair back, reaches into the stone, and pulls out a long sword. Thin and elegant, so, so small in his massive fists, clumsily wielded in his palms. This is not what he was fated for, but he needs to be better. He needs to be like her. And he swishes the long sword a couple of times, nods towards Artemis, and looks up at that alpine tree and begins running the circuit. Artemis frowns once more, the expression catching in the mismatched gaze. Wild Hunt, your circuit begins now. Sayer, how do you ascend the tree? What Sayer would normally have done is charge forward, making himself the largest image here so that his quarry would make themselves known so that he can utilize patience. But that is not what Sayer is doing. All that he can think of in his mind as he follows his gaze, holding that long sword up, jumping up the tree like an uppercut, he thinks to himself, what would she do? What would she do? She'd jump. She'd launch herself, finding the right branches just before the opportunity presents itself. The wild hunt would try to get me, but not if I'm fast enough. And Connie, I would like to use patience from my calling the blades. <laughs> We're using mechanics! Uh, yes, yes, I am. Yes, so to the audience for context, between arc one and arc two, I essentially presented Strike Team Nova with a system agnostic level up. And patience is the one that Sayer chose for himself. I gave each member of Strike Team Nova a choice between two level ups, two progressions. So tell me, Sayer, what does it mean to evoke patience? To evoke patience means when I think before acting, I roll 2d6 plus blades, which is a plus one for me. And in the way that I utilize this is that I am finding moments as I'm jumping between these branches to before my feet even touch the branch to wait for a wild hunt member to jump out at me so that I can pivot quickly, huh. crafty, agile, just like she would do. My God. Okay, roll 2d6 plus one. Yep, 2d6 plus one. <laughs> Woo! That's two sixes in the die. That's, that you got boxcars? Okay, that's, uh, what what happens on a ten plus? What happens on a what happens on a ten plus? Jeez. On a ten plus, I act first. Patience comes true for today, and I'm able to. I mean, Connie, you let me know what the wild hunt do as I jump between each branch, 
predicting what they're doing and try to pivot myself away. I think he's uncharacteristically like himself. He jumps onto each branch with like his tippy toes. It is mm -hmm. like a dancer. And of course he knows how to do this. Like he a flourish. He's seen Sing yeah. do this a million times upon his palm, upon his thigh. He knows the dexterous movements of his sister. Like he knows the back of his palm. Yes, you bound on the ball of your foot as you go from trunk to trunk, branch to branch, outstretched twig to outstretched twig. And the first of the wild hunt to buffet you is Kamar Abad. You don't see them, but you feel their presence in the mist thickening around you. And then the mist takes shape to your left. You see an egret rear a slender, elegant neck, form completely of fog with a sharp beak and long, elegant wings. It flaps and swoops and dives at you at the same time as a tiger woven from mist plunges towards you from the right. How do you twirl and buffet your way through this? I think Seir was using the longsword like a python for a moment, but then sees this, launches himself upwards, pulls the longsword out, and aerodynamically pursues upwards. And as he dodges, he cheekily says the words falling clumsily out of his mouth, strange and unfamiliar, but words he's heard many times before. Ooh, that is close. Ooh, nearly didn't make it out of that one. Oh yes, those words feel so clumsy, tumbling out of your lips, but they also feel familiar. A, a, a boy using borrowed weapons, borrowed phrases, and yet it's working. Somehow it's working. You launch your way up the trunk and the force of your propulsion dispels and disperses the mist around you, washing the tiger and the egret back into the fog. And then as you go upward, you see a floating cascade of cracked marble descending quickly upon you and you see Muse's pure carved face, its eyes set in those moss-ridden crevices. They're raising a hand down at you and you feel necrotic energy starting to brim in the air between the two of you. Ooh, don't like that. And as he notices this in bullet time, Sayer's eyes widen. And what he normally would have done was raise a forearm up to block and push through. I mean, Muse is light and built for casting. They can't deal with the full brunt of a heavy set man humbling towards them. But that's not what Sayer is doing. Sayer notices this necrotic energy come towards him, unsheathes the longsword, and tries to bat it out of the way. So in the resulting explosion, jump off to the side and avoid views entirely. Instead of blocking, you do something unfamiliar to you. You parry. The sword comes out. It hits that explosion of pure, dark, void, necrotic energy that's starting to burst from Muse's levitating fingertips. And you buffet them away, essentially, not by using your own sheer force and bulk, but by redirecting the energy that it was trying to have 
lightning spark its way out from the pit of its palm. And with the explosion that comes from it, you spiral your way back up as you see chunks of marble start to go flying past you as their body starts to come slightly undone from the force of that propulsion. Sorry about that. Again, unfamiliar words, borrowed phrases, borrowed weapons. And as you start to surge toward the higher points of the tree, you're beginning to reach where the trunk and the bark starts to spiral upward into the mist. And your feet are running on this corkscrew of bark and wood. Flakes of thick, heavy, mist-strewn grain beginning to peel off like scales on a fish being wicked over with a knife. As you continue to ascend, you hear a voice calling you somewhere up ahead in the depths of the fog. <laughs> hey, not bad, little brother, not bad. But I'm afraid your time for victory has come to an end. And blocking your path directly in front of you is Diego del Sol, unarmed. But one fist is flat in the meat of their outstretched palm from the other arm. And they're giving you that wicked smile. As you start to run toward them, she starts to run toward you. Sayer, in this moment, there's a moment where his blood runs hot. There's something deep inside his chest that calls to him that's knocking on the door begging to be acknowledged, begging to be looked at, to be used. And there's a moment where Sayer, out of muscle memory, rolls his shoulder and is preparing to join in, but he sees an opening. He remembers every time he is sparred with her, the way she would slide beneath his legs, grab onto the belt loop behind him so that he is jumping around clumsily before using the platform of his back to move upwards gracefully, fatedly, a light radiant in all of our lives. Must be fate that I remember this now. And Sayer smiles, the corner of his lip twitching. He runs forward, chuckling and laughing, a bubbly laugh that's alien, that is foreign to his body, foreign to his lips and throat. <laughs> and he slides between their legs to attempt to emerge on the other side and use their like her back as a platform to jump up. She was expecting you to block, to parry, to face her head on. So she was not expecting you to slide at the last minute between her legs. You feel something above your head explode. You realize it's the atmosphere itself as Diego throws an arm forward and the punch hits empty air. But from the profile, we see just a blast of pure annihilating energy explode out from that clenched fist of his and absolutely blast just the hole through the tips of the alpine pines on the slope around you. It actually also carves out a tunnel through the spiraling path that you're walking on. What the? But you're gone. You've slid past from underneath her legs and you're disappearing into the mist higher, higher, higher up into this tree and you're approaching it, you can feel it, you can feel your goal, your quarry beckoning you mere dozens of feet away. And then without warning, nothing to give you any sort of heed, 
Long comes striking. She explodes out of the mist to your right from your blind spot, actually, and you see two bronze-tipped spears wicking up in either direction towards your face. And Sayer instinctively runs his right hand down towards the hilt of the crescent blade. And he pulls, but it doesn't come loose. It's stuck. And he pushes it back and blocks with his long sword and holds it up like he would hold up a crescent blade, the blade outwards, inverted away from himself. Not how this weapon is meant to be wielded, but he wields it nonetheless. He attempts to block. The force of it, Sayer, of holding this unfamiliar weapon in this unfamiliar position, you do block the blow from Long, but a long sword is double-edged. It bites into your forehead for a second, <clears throat> and you feel a bright crimson line open up across your brow. But the day is not ended. The fight has not yet been won. Long springs back, twirling both of the javelins in her hands, twirls one above her head, and then comes in lunging again, giving you no chance to collect your breath. And he just remembers that image of her in his mind, seeing that blood, seeing that red across his brow, remembering the feeling, the stickiness of his antlers fallen over, the blood covering over his forehead, the fire, the flame, the ash, the lance. And Sayer tosses the longsword to block the path of this person because they have to chuck it down to keep moving forward and he's going to attempt to maneuver behind them and give them a kick in their lower back. Like he's seen Sink do a thousand times before. You borrow your sister's maneuver when she's fighting a martial opponent of high skill, high dexterity, and high strength, redirecting Long's power against Tada Self. And you do it. <laughs> you roll boxcar sayer, you do it. In this moment, you feel perfectly in sync with everything you think trans wants, no needs you to be. You twirl around, your boot plants in the lower half of their trunk. You buy yourself distance, space, a stagger. You turn, you see the pendant dangling from a bare branch. Your fingers outstretched, you grab for it, and then as soon as your palm closes over it, the circuit is done. It's true. This is what he needs to be doing. This is the course he needs to take. How blind he was before. How foolish. And he grips onto that pendant. He looks upon that reverse-edged, hammered moon pendant in his hands and looks at it and... His heart goes out to a hollow part of himself he lost two months ago, yearning for that spark, that connection. But it is hollow. It is empty. There's no callback. There is no bright-eyed, pink-eyed sister to pat his shoulder and say, Good job. You did it, Sayer. And he just mouths it to himself, voiceless, as he stares at the moon pendant. Come on, Sayer. We should greet Artemis at the base. He's struck back to reality. Yes. Yes. And he coils the pendant into his palm, holds it tightly, 
and follows Tata's lead. Sayer, at the base of this massive tree, you are victorious. The crescent moon pendant is pressed in your palm, but as you come out of the mist and toward where Artemis and the rest of the wild hunt are gathered, you don't see a scene of celebration or even defeat in your wake. Instead, you see Diego on one knee, bent over muse. It seems to have fallen hard against the soil, against your explosion. There are stray pieces of curved, cracked marble scattered across the pine needles. And Diego is holding Muse gently and reassuringly, a large hand cupped against its shoulder. <laughs> You're okay, Muse. You're in pieces already. What's another crack, eh? Extra leg here? Extra arm there? And you hear a voice ring out from Muse, even though they are staggered in pieces on the forest floor. <laughs> I can tell you are concerned, Diego. You need not fret. Death and I are old friends. Oh, come on. You're nowhere close to death right now. Try to give me a fright now, are you? And that's when Long, accompanying you, stepping forward past you, calls out. Artemis. I thought you said he was one of ours. What gives? Artemis is frowning. She has been frowning this entire time, watching you work with a solid, stony expression. Balance. Balance. And it looks like she was about to go into some kind of lecture, some kind of lesson. She sees you. She looks at you. She sees the ghost on your shoulder. She sees Sing hovering in every motion, every plastered smile. She frowns, and you hardly catch the breath of he was before Artemis turns her back on you and barks, Diego, how is Muse? I thought oh, I told all of you to take it easy today. And she does not tell you to leave, but you know when you've been dismissed. This moment he comes back to reel him, and he momentarily lurches forward, reaching out to Muse, to Long, to Diego that guilt of what he has done. And then he sees Artemis's face, the face of the patron saint of mortals. What did he, what does that mean? And he recollects himself for a moment. There's no space to be held for him here. This is to be reflected on later. Another hidden lesson, another rubric that he does not understand by which he measures up to. But maybe he will, and maybe this path will be it. And Sayer, half-heartedly, pendant dangling in his fists, gives one last look back to the wildland, back to the great huntress themselves, and walks away. And as Artemis turns her back, you don't see this, but the wild hunt does. As she brings a hand to her brow, rubs at it, Touching at those eyes that don't belong to her. Just keep making the same mistakes, don't we? She speaks to no one in particular. And as Long's arm goes around Artemis's shoulders, one of very few people they would ever allow to do, we pan to black. Two months have passed since the Chosen One's death. 
Two months of Zionin as a knife, of Lumira hiding within her restlessness, of Seir seizing a light that has never been his. Two months, one week, three days, 11 hours and 48 minutes. That's when you get the call. All of you, one after the other, your oracle whisking into existence with a colorful, chirruping noise. Attention, Strike Team Nova! You've been summoned to the chamber of the Prime Oracle by fate herself. This episode was edited by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our original intro theme music is by Jonathan Charles. Transplaner RPG is supported by our incredible Patreon precepts. Folks pledge to our highest tier on Patreon. A massive thank you to... Stardiers, Jordan, Derek Davidson, Phil, Mark J, Astrid, Spencer, Lyle and Peanut, Rose, Alex, The Bow System, Cassidy, Lex, Charles, Cora Eckert, and Scruffesis. Pledge to our Patreon today for as little as $3 a month to unlock exclusive news, character sheets, GM notes, and even the chance for your tabletop OC to cameo in our show. Until next time, Transplay Nerds!